Well, good morning and welcome to week one of a three-week series titled Joseph in the Movement of the Spirit. This series follows along with our Dive In 2022 readings, uh, where we are reading from uh, Genesis, and we uh, encourage you, if you are not reading along, to jump in and to uh, follow along for the rest of the, the week's uh, of February as we finish out our Genesis readings that coincide along with the life of Joseph. During our mini-series, we're going to be examining the life of Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. But we'll also be looking very closely at the movement of God through the Holy Spirit. And yes, God's calling upon our lives and how God is still calling us uh, to draw closer to God and to follow God's lead in this world. And so as we prepare to read God's word, let us pray, seeking God's illuminating grace. Loving God, you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. We thank you that we are your children, Help us to hear your word, Lord, for us this morning. And help us always to walk in the light of your truth and live in the light of your steadfast love. May the strength of the Holy Spirit reflect the light of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 39. We're going to begin at verse number one. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and with him there he had no concern for anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome and good-looking. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, with me here, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. 
One day, however, when he came into the house to do his work, and while no one else was in the house, she caught hold of his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called out to the members of her household and said to them, See, my husband has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when he heard me raise my voice and cry out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Then she kept his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to insult me. But as soon as I raised my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. When his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, This is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He remained there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A couple of years ago, the Atlantic Magazine asked the question, if you could go back in time and change one thing, what would it be? How would you answer that question? Well, The Atlantic asked several university professors their thoughts. A Duke professor and economist, Sandy Darity, wrote, I wish that radical reconstruction had been made a reality after the end of the Civil War. This would have entailed the promised 40-acre land grants to the formerly enslaved, their rights to fully political participation, Assurance of control over their children's schooling. Protection by the Union Army in the South and in the arming of the freedmen for self-defense. Marina Warner of the University of London shared her thoughts and her wishes that Ferdinand and Isabella had torn up the Alhabram decree which had driven all the Jews out of Spanish territory. She says, history will look very different if the coexistence of Jews, Muslims, and Christians had continued in 1492. Rutgers professor Sandra Kelly had a, a suggestion that may surprise many of us. She wishes that agriculture had never been invented. Imagine, she wrote, far less environmental degradation and income inequality, a shorter work day for all, 
a varied diet and possibly better health outcomes for certain communities and a profound confidence that the future would provide. A world without industrial agriculture would pretty much be the Eden of the Bible. Hunter-gatherers' life isn't sounding so bad, she concluded. One reader said this, had President John F. Kennedy not been assassinated in 1963, it is unlikely that he would have escalated America's involvement in Vietnam. That seminal moment in Dallas changed the trajectory of America and its impact is still being felt today. Another reader said, rather jokingly, I'd let Rocky Balboa beat Apollo Creed during their first match, thereby saving humanity from 43 years of Rocky sequels and spinoffs. How about you? What one thing would you do if you could go back in time and change things? Would you prevent the assassination of Abraham Lincoln? How about overthrow Adolf Hitler before World War II? Would you save Jesus from agony on the cross? In the book of Genesis, a man named Jacob settled in the land of Canaan. He had 12 sons, and one of them was named Joseph. Jacob, Scripture tells us, loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age, and Jacob made Joseph a long robe with sleeves, sometimes called the coat of many colors, right? You can just imagine, can't you, how his brothers responded to to all that special attention from his father. Well, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. But in addition, Joseph was a dreamer. And one of his dreams contained the message that all of his older brothers would bow down to him. And when they heard this, they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. If you could go back in time, would you change history and and say to Jacob, you know, Jacob, That son Joseph of yours is a little bit of a brat. You shouldn't give him special attention and treatment. Do you know his brothers hate him? At age 17, Joseph was shepherding the flock with his older brothers, acting as their helper. And four of them were misbehaving in the field. So Joseph, brought a bad report to dear old dad. He threw his brothers under the bus. If you could travel back in time, would you tell Joseph, don't be a snitch. Your brothers are going to terminate you. Sure enough, the situation went from bad to worse. Joseph one day, or Jacob, excuse me, one day sent his son Joseph to check on his older brothers who were out pasturing his father's flock. Joseph traveled and traveled and finally found them in Dotham, and his brothers, quote, 
saw him from a distance. How could you miss him? He was like a neon sign in that coat of many colors. Before he came near to them, Scripture says, they conspired to kill him. The brothers said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Thankfully, the eldest brother, Reuben, talked some sense into his younger brothers. He says, let us not take his life, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand upon him. Reuben's plan perhaps was to rescue Joseph later and return him to his father. Give Reuben some credit. He made a good decision in a very difficult and challenging and tragic situation. One of the things that we will see over the next several weeks as we go through our series and we read through the, the rest of Genesis is that through the Holy Spirit, God is not just working in the life of Joseph, but God is working in the lives of others and, and in seemingly insignificant events and decisions and actions will have profound consequences on the history of Israel. When Joseph comes to his brothers, they seized him and they stripped him of his robe and they threw him into that pit only to sell him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And the Ishmaelites took him to Egypt. As the story of Joseph and his brothers begins, it makes us want to go back in time and to make some changes. Why not? Most of us can think of positive choices that would have changed history and improved the world. Protecting the Jews in 15th century Spain or saving Lincoln from assassination, supporting reconstruction after the Civil War, stopping Adolf Hitler before World War II. All would have been good for God's people in some terribly tumultuous times. But we should never forget, never, that God is working toward a surprising conclusion. Even when humans are acting in horrible, horrible, Ways. In the book of Genesis, Joseph was sold to Potiphar, one of, of Pharaoh's officials. That seems bad. But Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and was put in charge of his house. Now that's good. Then Potiphar's wife saw how handsome Joseph was and she said, lie with me. That's bad. But over and over again, Joseph refused. Now that's good. Yet Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of misconduct and Joseph was thrown in prison. That's bad, isn't it? But God continued to show him love and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. That's good. 
bad and good, bad and good, bad and good. Clearly, God has, with a steadfast love, is always working towards a surprising conclusion, even when humans are misbehaving. If we were to go back in time and to change history, we might disrupt the work that God is doing in us and in our church and in our world. But humans seem to have this kind of natural inclination to look back, to look back to what we know best, to instead of moving forward to the place where God has planned for us and the place where God is moving us. Think about the nation of Israel after they uh, had been freed in the book of Exodus from slavery in Egypt. When things got challenging on the way, what did they do? They looked back. They looked back to going back to, to Egypt. Moses had to contend with uh, self-appointed leaders who expressed a wish to go back to Egypt where they had been enslaved and had been treated terribly for hundreds of years. These leaders had their focus on what they already knew, slavery in Egypt, instead of what God was pointing them to towards the promised land. They were more comfortable looking in the rearview mirror than they had been instead of looking ahead to where God was trying to take them. But this isn't just an ancient problem. It can be a modern one as well. Nearly every institution, more than a couple of months old or a couple of years old, has what might be called a back-to-Egypt committee. It's typically self-appointed. It's made up of stakeholders of a sort that want to make sure that nothing changes, that traditions are honored, that the new leadership respects the culture of the institution. They represent the culture of the institution, and yes, nothing changes. And in light of the pandemic, we probably could add a sixth one, that we likely crave a return to what once was. Kay Katan, in her book, Being the Church in a Post-Pandemic World, has written about the disruption and the displacement and the destruction caused by the pandemic. You see, the pandemic is not a pause. It's not a pause that once we get through it, we're going to just be able to go right back to where we were, what, February of 2020. We're not going to be able to return to those old ways. The pandemic has accelerated change, change that was already happening in this world, change that was happening even in our church. Institutions, including churches, are struggling to move forward even if they're not seeking to go back. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to live into God's dream for us. We're called to live into it. Pastor Gian talked about that last Sunday, and if you weren't able to hear her message, I encourage you to go back and, and find it on YouTube and listen to what God's dream is. God's got a dream for you and for me. And it's not merely to survive, but it's to thrive. 
And this is what Joseph allowed the Spirit to do in the ups and in the downs of his life. In spite of Scripture not sharing anything about his prayer life, I believe that Joseph must, must have been a prayer warrior. He was someone who trusted in God's steadfast love and who asked over and over and over again for God's breakthroughs to happen in his life. You see, such prayers activated God's power and God's passion in Joseph, and it can do the same in you and in me. Those who regularly pray for God's new possibilities and open doors find themselves habitually looking up and out with holy expectations. And as we set aside our preferences in order to make room for God's, our hearts and our minds then have space to discern and pursue God's next steps forward. In, flat, in fact, God's future, when that happens, for us becomes nearly irresistible. Today and for all of our tomorrows, I invite us to hold fast to the steadfast love of God. In every time and place, situation and institution, God is moving. God is moving to bring God's purposes out. Sometimes we humans cooperate with those purposes. And sometimes we don't. But nothing, but nothing deters God in the work of saving people and helping God's children live abundant lives. Even the bad things that we would like to change, whether it is in the world or in our own personal history, can be transformed into good because you see God is that great. God is that good. God is that almighty and glorious. God is not responsible for the evil that people do, but history shows us that God can turn bad into good. God did it with Joseph and his brothers. And God did it in Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. You see, nothing is wasted by God. When Joseph's bro brothers sold him into slavery, they set the stage for his rising up in Egypt. And when Jesus died and was buried in the tomb, he was in the perfect place for resurrection. Each of us has committed sins. Each of us has suffered defeats. Each of us has made terrible mistakes. And we have also been treated terribly. While we might want to jump back in time to a time machine to change the past, we must remember with our lives that God is always at work in your life and in mine, God is always at work turning evil into good. Since nothing 
is wasted with God. There's no point in trying to change history. Instead, you see, you and I are called to trust. We're called to trust in God's steadfast love. Can you say steadfast love with me today? Steadfast love. Can you do it a little bit better than that? Like you really want to, you want it to live here in your heart? Do you want that love? Can you say it like a prayer? Steadfast love. Amen. Amen.